Hey guys, welcome to the Let's Get To It podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Hamilton, and I'm so glad you're here. We are going to talk to people from all different walks of life about faith, family, and friendship. All right, let's get to it. Hey guys, I have two incredible guests today, Katie Andert and Rachel Pitts. Katie and Rachel are wonderful friends from college. We all attended Lee University and graduated in 2002. We've led very different lives since then and are coming together to talk about what we believed then and what we believe now. And guys, we cover it all. Faith, purity culture, marriage, divorce, women in ministry, and politics. Have our beliefs and opinions changed? Have they stayed the same or are we still working things out? We covered so much and Katie and Rachel gave such great insight that I'm splitting this conversation up into two episodes. I don't want you to miss anything they have to say. So let's get to it. I want to welcome my sweet friends, Rachel and Katie, to the Let's Get To It podcast. Thank you guys so much for being here today. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's awesome. I I am so glad. So we are old. Well, I'm not going to say old. We are friends from college that Mm -hmm. happened some time ago. (laughs) So just a few years, just just a few years. years. We have aged well. We haven't aged a day. Mm -mm. Mm -hmm. No, we still totally look 18. (laughs) Yep, absolutely. So, Katie, you are in Chicago. Rachel, you are in Cleveland, Tennessee. What is life looking like during all of the pandemic, everything going on? Katie, what what is life up like in Chicago? Uh, Shut down. (laughs) Um, We've been shut down uh, since March 2020. um, And we only really opened back up kind of in the summer And then back in, I think it was October, we sort of shut it down again as the numbers climbed again. Um, And we've pretty much been shut down since. Um, We're sort of now starting to battle going back to school. So Mm -hmm. I am a Chicago public school teacher. You're seeing us on the news right now. I've been outside teaching in the snow. Um, In the snow. In the (laughs) snow. I have a picture of my little desk. I saw it. You know, yeah, like by by myself in the snow. Um, It was about 30 degrees that day Um, just to sort of, you know, get the idea across that it's a little safer out there than it is in the building. Um, But yeah, and you know, that's kind of what life's been like around here. Just kind of struggle, you know, struggling like everybody else to kind of, you know, kind of make it through this. And I have a three-year-old, so that's been an extra challenge. No wonder you were willing to teach outside in 30 degree snow. <laughs> yeah. I was like, Oh, no big deal. I get out of the house. You're like, I'm good guys. I'm fine. Just leave me alone for a little bit. That's right. That's <laughs> I have right. some warm gloves. I'm fine. Yes. There you go. <laughs> Rachel, how about you? What is life like right now in Cleveland, Tennessee? Well, the virus doesn't really exist here. Ah. Um, so <laughs> we have, uh, it's been interesting. And um, we too have gone through sort of some ebb and flow of what's shut down, what is open, how open it's going to be. Um, we seem to not be really uh, shutting things down, but just sort of more um, limiting capacities. Um, and so uh, that's been interesting. Um, we have four kids in school here, so that's um, you know sports and activities and things like that have been altered to say the least, and some of them have been canceled, um, which has kind of been sad. Um, but you know, it's still very much the South in so many ways. 
it's caused a lot of divide among mm-hmm. people who um, believe systems. Um, we've been shocked at how some churches have handled themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's been uh, disappointing in some ways and in other ways, some other places have been really encouraging how they've handled things. So definitely um, a divided uh, town, I guess you could say we live in for lots of reasons right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we're going to get to a lot of that, and I'm excited to hear what you guys have to say. Um, So we are going to talk about a lot of different things today. We're going to talk about faith and marriage and purity culture and some politics. What could possibly go wrong (laughs) talking about all these topics? (laughs) But here's what I love. So we um, went to college together at Lee University. Uh, We graduated, we're just going to be honest, 2002, and we've lived some life since then, and some good stuff, some not so great stuff, Um, and and I think that's all informed us, and that's kind of our own journeys, and so what I kind of want to do today is ask about your journey and how these kind of topics um, are interwoven in them, so Um, I'd love, though, to get a little bit of highlights about what life has been like after college. Um, Rachel, why don't you go first? Um, Well, actually, when I graduated in 2002, um, I was married um, and uh, I left Lee married and then moved back to my hometown in Florida. I got a job at the high school that I graduated from. Um, And then shortly thereafter, I had my oldest child. Kate. Um, and then uh, through an interesting turn of events, um, my husband at the time uh, got his uh, national board certification in education and then pers- decided to pursue a master's degree in education. And the best place to do that at the time seemed to be to move back to Cleveland. Um, so we moved back to Cleveland for him to finish his master's degree, um, had another child, Matthew, and then the world fell apart. <laughs> Matthew was about 13 months old. Um, I found out that my husband had had multiple affairs, um, basically with people he, random people he met online. Um, and then uh, we separated. We were separated for a full year um, before I decided to proceed with a divorce. Um, and then I was single for seven years. I went back, got my master's degree in educational leadership, became the principal of the local virtual school, and um, then reconnected with somebody we went to college with <laughs> who had also um, divorced and so now I'm married to Jeff and together we have five kids and four still live at home. So yeah, yeah that seems to be the in, nu- the, in, a, nutshell. in a nutshell, <laughs> in a nutshell. Yeah. 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 What about you, Katie? Um, so yeah, graduated 2002 and actually right before graduation, I did my student teaching, you know, I did half of it in Cleveland and then immediately over a weekend, moved to the south side of Chicago for eight weeks to do the second part of my student teaching. And then after after graduation, just really, really felt strongly about moving to Chicago. And so um, just decided to do that and <laughs> moved up to Chicago, didn't know anyone, um, really wanted to teach and uh, kind of te- have that urban setting. And so I moved up to Chicago. Um, and then a few years later, Um, decided to become a reading specialist, became a reading coach, moved to the north side of Chicago with my teaching, Um, and then uh, did that for a couple of years, decided to go back into the regular classroom, but I decided to, I wanted to teach ELLs, 
And so I've been teaching, um, you know, a lot of immigrant and refugee families um, really throughout my career. But that's kind of what I'm doing now on the north northwest side. Um, and I live on the northwest side with my husband and uh, my three-year-old. And then somewhere in there, um, it became, you know, big on traveling. Um, I just, I, I feel like American, we always just answer about our jobs, right? Um, but I do have other, other interests, you know, <laughs> but that's teaching in the that. snow. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm in the union. I've been on strike several times on the picket line. Um, but yeah, in a nutshell, I've, I've been a pretty much an urban dweller, um, since 2002. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And for us who are not teachers, tell me what an ELL is. Oh, sorry. An English language learner. That's been the majority of my students would have that label. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's yeah, very really unique. sweet kids, really sweet families mm-hmm. and really great. I've gotten to have some great conversations about things that, you know, growing up in Charleston, South Carolina, I knew nothing about. So. Right. I think definitely your experience with teaching on the South side of Chicago, um, teaching incredible families that are immigrants and um, refugees. And I think that's had quite an impact on you. So with all of that, um, how have you guys seen your faith change over the last um, couple years, couple years? Um, has it changed? And if it has, um, kind of what influenced that change? So I think I'll just go, I'll continue with, because I feel like my teaching has really completely changed my life and my faith. You know, I think not changed my faith. I think my faith really is still the same. You know, I was lucky to, I grew up Southern Baptist. I grew up in a community, a Christian community all through my childhood into college, um, really was, was blessed by that. I learned a lot about having a personal relationship with Christ, really knowing God and knowing that he cared about me and, you know, all of that. So I think that has really remained the same. And that's been a huge cornerstone of my life and ever, you know, all the way through um, having a morning quiet time, you know, those kind of things that, that are kind of were catchphrases. They, they actually have stuck with me and I, yeah. I appreciate that. Um, but I think that working with, you know, I'm, I'm a minority a lot of times in my job. You know, when I'm in my classroom, most of the time, I'm the only white person in that room. And it's been that way since 2002. And I think having a front row seat to, I don't even know if that's a fair, I don't even, I should, probably shouldn't say front row seat, but having that kind of perspective of knowing the families, getting to know families who are going through immigration issues, refugee issues, poverty issues, um, you know, seeing, seeing that firsthand, um, has really <laughs> changed my life. And I, I'm very protective of, of those, of those people and those families. And, um, in a way that I think, you know, you see it in the Bible where Christ, you know, God is very protective of foreigners and newcomers. And so I, you know, I do think that, um, you know, that has definitely, just kind of changed how I see God too, you know, that I kind of come from this very privileged background. And so kind of getting, seeing the other side of that mm-hmm. has been really important. Just influencing your faith and informing yeah, yeah. your faith on a greater kind of rounding it out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could, I can echo Katie in that 
And teaching definitely um, informs your faith, and it actually causes you to put a little bit of um, backbone to to faith. I think that um, my dad's a pastor. I grew up in our church. It was non-denominational. Um, and so I had a very different view of, of Christianity in a lot of ways until I started encountering um, other other walks of life, other perspectives. Um, but for me, it was the flip. I grew up in more of an urban area um, with multicultural people, especially in my high school experience. Um, and when I came to Tennessee, I was encountered with this extreme poverty of Appalachia. Mm-hmm. And that has a significant impact as well. Um, this extreme poverty where it is a cycle. I mean, it is generational poverty. Um, they've, they've always lived this way. And their children will live this way. Their grandchildren will live this way. It is, it's upsetting. Um, and so in a lot of ways, um, having worked with immigrant families and with some families here in sort of the foothills of Appalachia, um, it's, it's sometimes more encouraging the, the immigrants' perspective because they see a way to improve education. They value education often so much more um, than, uh, and that's a generational thing. Um, and I think my faith has probably... Um, I'm just going to say matured mm-hmm. uh, because I think that um, in order to mature, you have to go through some things. Yeah. And I think um, my divorce, having kids, um, Matthew was born with severe hip dysplasia. Like he wasn't supposed to really be able to walk. He's supposed to have to have multiple surgeries and and things like that. And then like miraculously, like there was bone one day, like we went for every six months we were going for a checkup. And then like all of a sudden the doctor was like, oh that's what we've been waiting on. And and so it was like, he never had one surgery. He didn't have to have any physical therapy. Like it was just a miraculous experience. And so I think that my faith has matured and grown um, through those experiences, through other cultures, through encountering other, other walks of life and through my own experiences of really having to rely on God for a lot of things that I probably didn't have to early on in my life. Yeah. I think you hit it right there. Um, Encountering different perspectives, encountering life situations that um, brought out a a new piece of God that you had not encountered before. I think that's really good. Is there a belief or maybe a tenet of your faith that you held on to in college that you don't necessarily hold on to now? For me, yeah, uh, I'll right. tell you kind of what it is for me. I'm not going to just one. get you on the hot spot um, <laughs> right now. So, you know, just one thing that might have changed. You know, for me, I think when I came to college, it was very much know what you believe and why you believe it and stand firm. And there is black and there is white. There's right. There is wrong. There is, you know, there is a answer to everything. You just have to find it. And, oh, <laughs> that was sweet. sweet. Oh, that's great. gray, right? <laughs> there, you know what? There is. And, you know, for my myself, especially, I think for me, I was walking through a really long illness that wasn't explained, could not be explained. And yet, you know, God's God's presence remained, but... I became extremely comfortable in the gray. I had to accept and become comfortable in that I do not know all the answers. 
I don't know if I'm supposed to know all the answers. I know the foundation of, you know, God's goodness and grace and love and mercy, and I pursue God, but I have become extremely comfortable not knowing um, every single thing. I have become extremely comfortable in gray of like, I'll probably find that out later when we get to heaven. So (laughs) I'm okay with not knowing right here and right now. Um, You know, for me, I think the other thing was, you know, in college, I remember us all talking about like, what is God's will and what is the one way that we're supposed to go, you know, like finding that one door that we were supposed to walk through. And then, you know, we will have joy and fulfillment and happiness and I just don't think that. I think sometimes God just gives us choices and said, hey, I, I gave you a mind of discernment and wisdom. Which one would you like to do? Katie, do you want to teach in South Carolina or Chicago? You know, <laughs> it's okay. Either right. way is fine, you know. And it wasn't this tightrope that if you misstep, you were going to fall. And there was no hope of ever, you know, getting back up. I just don't believe God is that um, – narrow and kind of waiting for us to like tip over. I just feel like God's sometimes gives us choices and and it's just like, hey, what do you want to do? I put that desire in your heart. Which way, which way do you want to pursue it? You know? I, I like to call that pottery barn faith. Do you remember when you used to get like the pottery barn like actual catalog? Yeah. And like I would look at it and I would be like, that I like want that living room. Like, you know, Rachel from Friends, like she was like, it was like page 97 of the the catalog, you know, and then like she has to create this elaborate story for Phoebe who thinks that she bought all this at the flea market. Mm -hmm. I think we did that. We did that with faith and going, okay, I want my life to look like this page 27 of the Pottery Barn fall catalog. Right. I'll just make up the story to go with it. But that's Mm -hmm. what I want it to look like. Mm. Um, And I got to find God's will. I got to find the way to get to page 27 of the Pottery Barn catalog. Yeah. and I think that we make those missteps because that's not how it works. <laughs> like we don't get to order the whole page, you know. know. So. And that puts a lot of stress on us. On it's yeah. a lot of pressure. Yeah. It's putting a lot of control on on you instead of allowing God to be in control too. So yes. I think it's it's a lot. Yeah, I can't, so I can totally I totally identify with with all of that because I do think that. Um, you know, especially when it comes to big issues, I think that it's not black and white. And I really, I wish it was mm-hmm. because it but, would be easier, yeah. you know, but I think that it is, it's so much gray and it, and, and people are messy, you know, life is messy. I think that, um, you know, that's something I wish had been said me to me more when I was younger. Um, I really didn't start hearing that phrase until I moved here and, and, was really involved with, with my church here, but like, sometimes you just have to give people grace. It's just, it's just all messy. There's no, like, it's not so black and white and, and rigid. And, um, and I think, you know, when it comes to God, I think God can work on, he can work in all of that. You know, he's not limited by, by, you know, the, I think we put a lot of limitations on him and what he can do. And yeah. Yeah. That's one thing I've learned is that even our missteps, he can still use those for his purposes. Mm-hmm. Like my story has not what I wanted it to be, but it doesn't make it less worthwhile. Yes. And I believe, and I don't know if you would believe this, so I don't want to project, but you know, for me, I also believe that God didn't want that for you. Right. That was not God's, again, 
for me. You know, God's will was not for your husband to do that. (laughs) But people make bad choices, bad choices sometimes. And unfortunately, we suffer the effects of those. And there are ramifications to those bad choices. But I don't believe that all of that bad was part of God's will. And I think for me, working with foster children for so long and having kids look at me and be taught this, that every single act in life is God's will, I'm like, no, baby, God did not want you to be abused. God did not desire that awful thing to happen. Now, I believe like what you said too, Rachel, of can God um, redeem those stories? Yeah. I do believe that for sure. And, and even, even as believers, we make mistakes. I think that was, if I reflect on 19 year old Rachel, that the pursuit of God's will is that I couldn't, I couldn't make, if I made a mistake, I was in sin. Mm. And I, and I, that's not true. Like I didn't, my salvation, my whatever, my sanctification, whatever you want to call it, was not in jeopardy because of a bad decision. Like, not that I'm like, you know, you can do whatever the heck you want and you're still good. But I think that there was such pressure of one misstep and you're done. Like it's over. Like you're the one who is messed up. You're the one. And, you know, I think that that is something that we are willing to extend grace for non-believers, but we rarely believe that believers are worthy of grace. Hmm. That's good. Yeah. And I think that's challenging because I can extend that grace to some believers and then it's a little challenging to do it to some others. (laughs) So I think that's good. I think that's a good challenge. My list is shorter now than it used to be of those who cannot receive my grace. (laughs) (laughs) But we're still human. And I've got a list. (laughs) I still have a list. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. I love it. Um, With that, let's talk about purity culture. So let me tell everybody, let me tell our listeners, what what are we talking about with purity culture in case you are unaware? So it was this very popular movement in the evangelical church in the 80s and 90s. It emphasized, you know, abstaining from sex before marriage, drugs, alcohol, cursing, um, really anything that was deemed, quote unquote, unholy. Um, You know, one of the most popular programs was True Love Waits. Teens would kind of um, sign pledges to wait until marriage to have sex. They would receive a purity ring that was really supposed to be given to your spouse on your wedding night. Um, I think it's so important, though, because I feel like we miss this, that this is really the church's response to kind of the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. So remember that. Like, when we're talking about this, it didn't just come out of nowhere. It's an absolute response to to that re- sexual revolution. Um, at best, you know, the movement really was to try to help youth remain emotionally, spiritually, physically whole before marriage. Mm-hmm. I think at worst, um, you know, it became a extreme legalistic expectation um, that if a person kind of broke a rule, they were left quote unquote, damaged. So I think we kind of all experienced part of this culture growing up. 
what was each of your experiences with this movement? Was it something that was done in your church, taught in your church? Let's see. I think Katie should go first because she actually had a true love weights ring. So I sure did. I sure did. I had I had a promise ring. Now it wasn't like the true a, love yeah. one. Mine was just a gold band that I I wore. Yeah. Okay, Katie. I want to hear your your story. I'll be I'll be perfectly honest. So I do agree. I do think that um, the the huge focus on sexual purity it did have. A pl- not a place, I shouldn't say it had a place, but I, it did, you know, it did inform my own ideas and, and practices about, you know, premarital sex. Like, I do think that there was some good that came out of that, you sure. know, but on the other hand, <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. I mean, so the true love waits there. It was funny because when I was preparing for this, you know, just thinking about all this stuff, I really, I'm going to be, I can barely remember that ceremony. And I, so you had a ceremony. I had a ceremony. Oh, okay. I had a ceremony. So I was Southern Baptist again. I don't. Everything is like for me. You know, I was in a Southern Baptist bubble in Charleston, South Carolina. I don't know if this was true for all other denominations. Like I don't know, but in Charleston, South Carolina, nineteen ninety, I believe it was six. I sure did have a true love weight ceremony. Um, my, I think my parents were there. I think at least one of them was there. I don't know. They might've both been there. Um, it was, we all went down to the altar. Our parents gave us a ring. I had a gold ring. Um, I don't know. I would love, I, I need to talk to my parents and say like, well, we're like, did, were you, was this weird for you? Like, I don't know. Like they, they seem to go like? along with it. Cause my parents were never like super, super conservative. So <laughs> I don't know. But, um, I think it had true love weights actually engraved in the band. I okay. think I, and where that ring is, I have no idea. I certainly didn't save it till I was married. I mean, I didn't get married till I was 34 or so. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I, 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 it was, it was a, it was a ceremony that I just don't have a lot of memory of what I do have memory of. I did go to Atlanta to our true love weights rally with Mr. Michael W. Smith. Thank you very much. Wow. No way. Yes. And I had a big sign. It was the Georgia Dome. I had a sign, you guys. We made poster board signs that said like true love weights. And I'm sure it had other little catchphrases. So your 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 we picket in days, your <laughs> <laughs> my picketing started, started in Atlanta with true love weights. Okay. <laughs> Let's rally. You love these rallies. That's girl. right. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm You've always it. been an activist. I'm, into, I'm always an activist. You've always been passionate. It's not a difference. <laughs> you've just, you've always been passionate. Though. But you know what? I think it's a good thing. Like you have deeply, deeply, passionately <laughs> pursued um, your, your faith. And that's fantastic. Wow. Well, you know, yeah. That's but, yeah, so but, interesting. So and, did you sign the pledge? Like, did you have a pledge to sign? Oh yeah, okay. we had a okay. pledge. I mean, it, we did the whole bit, but I'll be like, I would have to ask other friends that were part of that. They probably, maybe they could have some more memory, you know, yeah. share some more memories of it. Cause I really don't remember a ton about it, but it was definitely like a good, it was probably a good year or two of my life. Like a, that was a big focus of our youth group. And wow. yeah, we so didn't have a, a ceremony. Um, And I don't know if we, like the church I grew up in was very, um, like we talked about these things. We talked about don't drink, 
you know, don't have sex, don't do drugs. It was kind of like the triad, you know, don't do these things. It was kind of equally dispersed conversation. Yeah. But you know, so it wasn't all just don't have sex. I did have a ring. I got it actually um, my senior year. Um, We had taken a trip. I was in band because, you know, super cool. All the cool kids. All the cool kids were. Um, We were in London. And we were at the Tower of London and um, I found this beautiful gold ring and I was like, oh, I don't know if it was so much like, oh, I want this ring or if I could talk my mom into buying it and being like, it's my purity ring. (laughs) (laughs) Might have been a little of both. Um, And so that was kind of my own pledge. I never signed anything. Um, I never had this. I never did a ceremony. Um, out man i well (laughs) i didn't have any of those such a rite of passage in the late 90s yeah but rachel you didn't have any of that no um our church was non-denominational we were fairly fairly small so youth group was dependent on whatever and by the time i was like a sophomore and junior in high school i just went to regular church like i was busy and moved on with my life um, which sounds terrible <laughs> as a pastor's kid. I'm like, Oh, that's really bad. But I would rather sit in the adult Bible study where you were learning something than I would with the kids in the youth group, uh, talking about whatever. Um, we were talking so, about sex, drugs, and alcohol. That's what we were talking about. No dancing. How you shouldn't do those things. Yeah. Um, but I, what's interesting, we, when, before we, when we were catching up, we we're talking about like my high school friend, Jenny, um, her church was all about it. Um, and so I sort of had the Josh Harris, I could say goodbye. Like they use that as like their small group curriculum. Oh yeah. For sure. Like, you must read the book. And, um, I remember when she was like going through it and I was like, Oh, well, I'll read it. You know, like, sure. Let's look at it. And I made it through like three chapters and I went, this is ridiculous. Like <laughs> That know? is so interesting. So always what made you turn thinker. off? You've always been, always the independent thinker. Yes. Um, well, because I just couldn't bring myself to go, you're telling me at 17 that I'm going to, if I want to date a boy, I need to be in a courtship and hang out with his family. Right. No, I just want to like go to the movies and get pizza. Like right. I don't, I'm not investing my life. I don't want to get married to this guy, but I want to hang out with him. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we got to leave. There were several of our friends who had read the book and who ascribed to that. And I was like, y'all, I don't know. Like it's in, and, and that was the extreme of the true love weights, you know, like, yes, that's weights, a, yeah. like, like, but just don't have sex. Like you're going to be okay. But this was like, don't even date. Yeah. Like don't even do that. And I felt like that was just that extreme really led to some damaging damaging issues. Mm, like what, what do you feel like that led to? Um, well, for, for me within that, it was a lack of, let me see how I can say that, that word. I don't want to say desirability because at 17, that seems weird, but, um, a lack of being desirable mm. because, you know, there's a natural thing, 14, 15, 16, you want boys to think you're pretty and to spend time with you. And, and boys find girls, you know, attractive and they want to spend time. That dating process is, is natural. And I think what the I kiss dating goodbye and the extremity of this purity culture was that's not okay. That's the first step to lust. 
Ooh, yeah. Yeah, like it's evil or something or dirty. Yeah. And so what happens is you have a bunch of girls who feel bad about themselves and their body image. And you have a bunch of boys who can't like the girl in their youth group, but they're going to go look at pornography on the computer. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the extremity of you can't do the natural things like I'm all about parameters in dating. I mean, we have three, well, four teenagers in our house currently. I'm all about the parameters of dating, but that's natural. It's natural to want to hang out with a boy and go to the movies and go get pizza or go bowling. That is normal and natural. Mm-hmm. It's natural to think a boy is cute. It's natural to think a girl is pretty. This extreme not true love weights, but the extreme of, of I kiss dating goodbye was like, it's all dirty. It's all dirty. It's all bad. Yeah. Sinful. Yeah, it's all bad. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and you can't, and, and teenagers can't be trusted with something like that. Right. So instead of teaching teenagers how to have healthy dating relationships, which are, like you said, natural and part of life, we are going to cut it off because we have to control this, this whole situation. Mm. And so instead of, you know, while you're young and you have your parents there, you have your Christian community there to help you sort of help guide you through that, there was this kind of the kibosh was put on it, you know. And so then you had a lot of people who weren't really learning how, how to be healthy, how to do that in a healthy way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You have boys who are, like I said, girls are struggling with body images because the boys aren't, don't think I'm cute. Right. And if they do, then they're dirty and they're gross and they're, they're just out to have sex with me. Mm. And then you have boys who have these natural desires. So they're going to slip around. And by the time a boy is 17 or 18 and goes to college, he has a full on addiction to pornography mm. that has been driven by this purity culture. Interesting. Because I can, I can do pornography in secret and nobody has to know. Right. And I can keep it out here. I can be this nice Christian boy who mm-hmm. respects the girls and does all the things, but I'm going to hide the, the pornography. And I think that hits a, a huge point in hiding what we can and cannot talk about what we can and cannot do. I am finding the older I get, um, I feel like I had a very different experience with church. Um, you know, I did grow up in a, in a Pentecostal church. I kind of feel like it was kind of like Pentecostal light, though, because when I got to Lee and saw people like doing Jericho marches, I was like, what is happening? That is not my... Imagine being a Southern Baptist. Right. Yes, that. girl. Yes. <laughs> I had... A couple Southern Baptists, we were all like, what? What happened? <laughs> but I had my mom, who's basically a hippie that got saved later in life, you know, her voice was always much louder than anybody at church for me. And my mom's kind of the overshare. And, and so nothing was off limits in conversations and she brought them up. Like, so we would talk about, and not just, we're not just talking about sex here, but, and, and she did talk about sex, obviously, but like alcohol, smoking, drugs, like all of it. She was really honest with her own experience. Um, I know in middle school, you know, when I had tried cigarettes, I liked them. They were great. They calmed my nerves. And, you know, my mom found it and I cried and, uh, and I was like, but mom, it made me so relaxed. And she's like, yes, it does, baby. 
I bet it did. Now let's go see what this stuff does to you. And so, so she was, she was so honest in, yeah, I bet that did feel really good, but here's how it harms you. And not just, no, don't do it. You know, talking about drugs, talking about alcohol, talking about even sex of like, I never, I never was presented with sex as bad, evil, or dirty, ever. It was, it was fantastic. You know, here's why I think you should wait for marriage. Here's what it does to you in your brain. Here's what it does to you emotionally. Here's how the reproductive system works. Like, I kind of feel like she like instilled all of these well-rounded reasons in my life that I'm finding not everybody had. Um, And so I'm like, hey, hippies make the best moms. So, (laughs) Um, but I I feel like I had that counter to when I went to church, I would just hear the, it's sin, it's sin, it's sin. And then I know so many people that would got married and you may kiss the bride, now go have sex. And they were like, wait, what? I don't, I thought it was sinful. And so now what do I do? And so, you know, I, I'm thankful that that was my experience, but I know that it's also been really hard for some people because it's wrapped up in their faith and their identity. Do you guys feel like it affected how you saw love and marriage? I think for me, I mean, gosh, you know, I don't remember really feeling like sex was bad. I remember feeling like sex really needs to be, you know, saved for the context of marriage. And I think, you know, that's a, that's a good thing to, to have instilled in you. Um, So for me, I don't remember thinking sex was bad. I do think that there, I'm sure there were churches that were, you know, kind of insinuating that, um, and then I, you know, didn't get married until I was 34, almost 35. And so I, you know, I, by the time I was married, I was, a, I had lived a lot more and I had had a lot more experiences. And so had I gotten married right out of college, mm-hmm. um, I think that would have been a totally different, um, kind of a different thing, but it, you know, because I waited so long to get married, I think I was kind of, you know, I was so, so far past those days, but I don't, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, th- I think that the, I think good premarital counseling can handle a lot of those issues. Um, good premarital. <laughs> emphasis on good. Yeah. Um, because I think that, you know, like I said, we're, we're raising teenagers here and, and specifically, you know, with Kate, um, I have, cause she's the oldest girl. So I have been probably, much to her like disdain, I have been overly honest right. about things. <laughs> like extremely honest, extremely transparent. And she's like, I'm not having this conversation again, mom. I You're like, oh yes, you are. Yes, we are. <laughs> oh, but we're not done. <laughs> and so um, you know, I've taken a very different um perspective than um probably than my mom did and probably that a lot of churches do. And people can disagree with me. That's fine. But I've, like Katie said, I've lived quite a bit of life. So I have a pretty decent understanding of how things are. Um, I feel like maybe I'm not an expert, but um, my, my statement to her has been sex is marriage. Mm. The piece of paper is meaningless. And so she firsthand has seen the effects of divorce 
Mm-hmm. In, in multiple situations, she's seen it, people close to us, of course, our own experience with it. And I was like, the piece of paper is a legal document. That's just like a, a combining of assets. Mm-hmm. I was like, the marriage happens with sex. Mm. That's the commitment you're making. And so we've got to change our perspective on, I get to, w- I have to wait till we've joined our assets before I can have sex. Mm. Like it's like we're waiting on like the the legal document, like we're still going to be given a dowry of six goats. Like, <laughs> I mean, like I, I'm not that I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't wait for marriage, because but I believe that sex is marriage. Like that's the marriage, like because that that's the marrying of of two people. Mm-hmm. It's not the document. It's not the ceremony. It's not even living together necessarily, but it's that that's the foundation. And so for her, I'm like, you, you've got to be aware. And I said, so if you're not willing to merge your assets and your life and you're not at that point, you know, you're not an adult and you're not ready to bring all those things together, then you're not ready to have sex, are you? Mm-hmm. Like, like if, you don't, if you're not living outside of my house, independent as an adult, then you're probably not ready. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that we were, I was taught, we were taught either by directly or by the caught of some of this purity culture that sex is the greatest thing once you've signed that document. Mm. But it's, but it's like, it became such a badge of honor. Right. And I think that's what you're saying. I think that to, and I'm going to say, and not just sex, I think there was this promotion of marriage as the ultimate prize that I think was not healthy because I think people went into it not knowing who they were, not understanding that their value was because God gave it to you as an individual and not understanding that. I don't know if you could go into a marriage that was healthy with all with all of the things if you did not go in knowing who you were and knowing that your value was not laid in kissing or having sex or whatever, you know, I know my mom always said, no matter what happens, nothing can separate you from the love of God. God's always going to love you. If you have sex, if you do drugs, if you, you know, she's like, here's what we want to keep you safe. Here's why I'm telling you these boundaries. But you know what? Nothing is ever going to separate you. And to me, that's the lesson that, you know, my kids are little and so I don't have to have these conversations yet. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Rachel, you're going to have to tell, let me know how all of your parenting teams goes and then give me the wisdom. Um, the jury is out. We'll let you know. Yeah. But that to me, even for my kids right now, nothing you do can separate you from God's love, can separate you from my love. Um, you know, and I think that value is something that was so important and I think sometimes was missed in the objectification of marriage. Mm-hmm. I absolutely, I remember at Lee, I feel like, um, and I don't know, you know, I, I kind of was thinking like, is was it a Southern thing? Was it a, you know, I think it was a combination of a lot of things. I think obviously the church had a big role to play in that. You, we were all at Lee. We're all in this, you know, we're 18 to 22 years old, all thrown together. But I do think that there was this um, 
a crazy amount of pressure put on getting your MRS degree. And I had never heard that until I got to Lee. And it was, and I think for, but I think for men too, I think, especially if they wanted to go into ministry, I remember hearing guys talk mm-hmm. like, well, I got to find my wife. Cause I want to be a pastor. You know, it was, it was, oh, she plays the piano. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, like, she'll <laughs> or she'll she'll run the women's, you know, she'll create the women's ministry and head that up. You know, it was just like this picture of this very, like this very clear picture of exactly what they were looking for always began with marriage, and um, and that was the ultimate goal when you were at Lee, and we were too young for that. And I and I look at marriages that came out of Lee and. I think some people were really lucky and they did find a great partner and they grew together. You know, they got married young, but they grew together and it's been wonderful. But then you have a lot of people who got really hurt by that and they ended up in marriages when they were extremely young and um, they didn't, they didn't work out. And, And that's such a huge blow to have to go through that. And so, and I don't know how it is now, you know, I don't know if, if, if college kids are still feeling that way at Lee and other places, I don't know if that's still such a, such a pressure, but it definitely, definitely was. And I think that's what caused, we we were kind of all consumed by it. And we were going through these Bible studies together and it was always around that desire to get married. And how do you, how do you kind of squash that desire so that you can like work on yourself? And I, I will answer. So I, I lead, I lead Propel Women on Monday night, February 1st is our launch night um, at, Lee, at Lee University. Shameless plug. Little plug. little plug right there. Anytime, know. anytime. Um, and so um, we had an interest gathering a couple weeks ago and I was, I was, I was speaking and I, you know, I told them, I was like, you know, this is a leadership development for, for women who either are interested in being in ministry or who are going into a leadership role in business, in, in the mission field, in the workplace, wherever you're going, like this is a, a Bible-based leadership development. Like whether you are, are single plan or you feel like God's called you to be single, like this is for you. If you get married, whatever it is, this is for you. And we had a girl, I had a girl come up to me after and she was like, I so needed to hear that it's okay to be single. And I was like, baby, you are 20 years old. <laughs> like, believe it's a me. blessing exactly. in a lot of ways. Believe I, me. Oh, yeah. I need to be single. And I think, I think again, and, and I want to say, like, we all loved our experience at Lee. We are oh, not yeah, yeah. bashing Lee. We yeah, love our experience. I'm still, I'm still connected there. Exactly. And so I think there's, there's a healthiness to be able to reflect back mm-hmm. on our experience and maybe inform how we talk about things, how we teach um, those that are younger than us, how we teach our own children. So that's what we're doing. So we're not, we're not bashing. Well, it, was, it was across the board. I mean, yeah, I don't think it was just Lee. No, no. it's it not. Really, it's not. And again, yeah, I think yeah. it was the objectification of marriage mm-hmm. and not who are you as an individual how can you fill that out? How can you find how God created you and fill in that space in the world? Well, I think we were always, I was, co- I was, I was comparing myself to other women too, you know, like, well, why are they in a serious relationship? Why are they getting engaged? Why are they getting married? And I was 21, you know, I was, we were babies. Young. Was, we were babies. Yeah. I, I actually, um, probably about two years ago, I was serving in the nursery at my, at my church and um, 
there was a girl I'd never met her before. We were in there together and she was probably, I think she was about to graduate from Moody Bible college. That's the big kind of conservative college here in Chicago, but sweet girl. We were just kind of like having conversation, you know, chatting it up in the nursery. And all of a sudden it came up, she was about to graduate and she was like, all my friends are engaged or, or in, you know, about to be engaged. And I'm the only one who's single. And I looked at her and I said, you are so lucky. <laughs> and it's not that, I, again, I want to say, like, it's not that marriage is bad. And if you got married young, that's a terrible choice. Right. Like, I'm not saying that for some people, it, it was the right choice. Yeah. But for her, I was like, what can I was like, look at all of your possibilities. I was like, you know, go and do everything you want to do. Go travel, go be, go try, try out some different careers. Go, go back, you know, do, I was like, you have an endless amount of possibilities ahead of you. You are 21 or 22, however old she was. And we ended up talking for about half an hour about it. And I just really thought, wow, I really hope she's going to have other women and other people speaking into her because I was in that same spot. I was her right? where it was like, well, the church and, or, or my school or my friend, whoever it was, they're all sort of, we're all kind of, you know, buying into this idea that, that marriage is the ultimate goal. Marriage is going to make me who I am supposed to be, you know, marriage is going to complete me. And, um, you know, I just, uh, no, yeah. no, that's not the case. Marriage is hard. Yeah. That was the other side of it is I think because we were so focused on just the wedding, getting to the wedding, there was no real like nitty gritty talk about marriage is messy because it's two messy people coming together. Marriage is hard. Marriage is wonderful, but marriage is a lot of work. It was yeah. supposed to be the the goal once you had achieved that, then your life was attained. Mm. Like that was it. Like you had your degree and you had a, a, a you were married, then that was it. Life was set and you were going to sell off into the sunset. Right the sunset. Yep. Yeah. And it was going to be awesome. Perfect. From that point on, because you know, you were in a committed relationship with someone. Mm. I have news that doesn't work that way. Yeah. That's so interesting. And I love hearing your guys' perspective. You know, again, because I was raised by a single mom, I kind of felt like, one, I do not regret getting married young. I was 23. Blaine was 22. I feel that we got married pretty eyes wide open as we, as much as we could at that age. But I was so aware of what marriage actually is like that. It is hard. It is work. I walked when, when we got married, I remember two things, one in premarital counseling, Blaine and I both decided we don't want a wedding. We want a marriage. So talk to us about what that is. And two, I walked down the aisle by myself and I wanted to, because I was like, I am making this decision. I am deciding that you are the person that I want to be with. And I felt so honestly empowered in that um, because it's like, okay, this is what I'm choosing. Now, it, I, it, <laughs> who knows what happens in the future? But as much as I can at little baby 23, 
Um, but again, I go back and I'm like, that was really because of my mom, like who was just like, here's the truth, kid. And, you know, um, not that we haven't had issues because we have because we're people, you know, and life is messy. But people are messy. That's my favorite. People are messy. Life is messy. Marriage is messy. Yeah. So do you guys see marriage different now? I'm assuming from all of that you said, yes. But how how do you see marriage now as compared to then at college? I I would say fragile. Mm. Um, Because I think, if I reflect and I'm honest with myself, um, based on, you know, my growing up experience, um, divorce just wasn't, it was once something my, my uncle did and nobody else did that. Um, like, you know, and so it was like, that just wasn't a thing. Um, and so I didn't consider that as an option. Um, I didn't consider it as an option because I thought, well, once you're married, you're like committed, like you work through these things. Um, but that's not true. Um, and it's fragile in the best sense. Um, I think that we treat things that are fragile with a lot of care. Mm. Um, you know, when I, when I bring eggs in, I'm super and make sure that they get put on the counter, not on the floor, you know, like, and there, there's just something you just handle things differently that are fragile. Um, and I think now I have a much different perspective of going, this has to be, has to be handled with care, um, and requires attention. Um, you know, it just doesn't work itself out. Um, you know, and I think that's something that I, I didn't know then. Um, you know, I thought all marriages were going to be like my parents and, you know, that there was an agreement that no matter what the disagreement was, that they were still going to love each other and not go to bed mad and, you know, be faithful and loving and kind and, that's not the case. Yeah. It's not always the case. So I think I, I my, my perspective now is that it's fragile and requires extra care um, and, and priority. Um, I know you guys both have small kids, so I'm going to take my moment <laughs> and say um, that I think when you have little kids, it's hard sometimes to keep the focus because you're just doing life. Like you're just simply surviving the toddlerhood. Mm-hmm. Um and, and that's hard. But I think looking back now, I go, yeah, it, you're, when they're grown, you're still going to be married to that person. Yeah. They're, they're worth the time now. Um, you know, cause Jeff and I, like, there are lots of Friday nights that it's just he and I, which, you know, it's like awesome. <laughs> but, but we are both acutely aware that if we don't work on the us throughout the week, that that Friday night can be lonely mm. if we're not connected all the time and, you know, in, in relationship with each other, because eventually our kids, they're going to grow up, they're going to move out and it's going to be back to us. And I think that there's one thing that I can look back at marriage and go those toddler years, the pre school age, just survive, put them to bed and act like an adult for 30 minutes. Yeah. But I think two, I had two, I've actually heard this from two completely different women in my life. One, actually, when I was in high school, um, married woman. And then um, recently, a friend's mom said it to her and she said it to me that um, 
And these were, you know, my friend's mom's been married almost 50 years. And she said, there are some days I just have to wake up and I have to choose to be married to this person again. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's a really great way to look at it. It's, you're not always going to feel in love. And I think when I was young, I thought if I marry another believer, if we're equally yoked, then (laughs) (laughs) we need to get to that phrase a little bit. (laughs) That's a good one right there. Yep. I will be happy. We will be in love all the time. It'll, everything will just work out. And I think hearing from, you know, other women who have been through long marriages that no, sometimes you don't feel that way and you have to make a choice and you have to recommit that day or you have to be committed to get through the hard, whatever hard thing is happening. And I think that's something that always keep in mind too, is like, because people are messy. People yeah, are messy. Like, marriage is messy. Yeah. We actually, when we wrote our vows, we wrote, I choose you above all others. Like, and that was something we had a quote in our, remember when they did like programs, wedding programs. Um, but we had the C.S. Lewis quote, like, I can't remember it off the top of my head. But it was, you know, basically love is a choice and it's a habit of choosing to love every day. Because you're not going to feel it. You're not going to feel it. And I will also say this. In in what we are talking about in choosing to love, I am not talking about um, choosing to love someone that is abusing you or mistreating you. We are – that is not what we're talking about. So if someone hears that, no, that's not it. No. That's when you choose love. Exactly. That's when you choose safety of mind, body, and spirit. Um, And emotional, emotional abuse is just as real as physical abuse. Yes. A hundred percent. Thank you, Rachel. hundred percent. So Rachel, you obviously have told us that you um, are divorced. You're remarried. Did that change how you saw yourself as a leader? Because you are very much a leader um, of women, a leader of people in the church and outside of the church. After your divorce, did that change how you saw yourself? Yes. Um, In both a positive and a negative way. Mm. Um, so in, in a positive way, um, I was, like I said, I was single for seven years. So I was a single parent of two kids for, for seven years. Um, and I, in the, in the positive way is that I decided to be brave and just step into serving my local body of women. Um, I, I, I did, I'll be honest, I did feel constrained to only minister to women mm. based on the fact that I was single, um, and all of those things. Um, but I did do that and there was a freedom that came with that decision. Um, I would say when I was married the first time, there was very much of a, a submission in a non-healthy way. I lived in in fear of being accused of trying to outshine or outlead my husband. Mm. And it was and, and, and it was a part of a part of that conversation. Wow. That in the in the, my first uh, my first marriage. And so I worked to support him in whatever his venture would be and take a step back. Mm. So for me in truth the divorce enabled me to go, Oh no, I'm actually the one. Mm. I'm actually the one who's called to be in, in a ministry setting. I'm the one who's called to lead. I'm the one who's called to do these things. 
um, that was a misstep. Mm. And um, I will say that remarriage has put an interesting spin on things. Um, Evangelical churches as a whole um, are speculative of people who are divorced and remarried being in leadership. Um, It's very um, tenuous as far as people, how they view you. Um, We have some great people who love us and who know our story, who have have cheered us on. Um, And then we have people who won't touch us with the 10 foot pole (laughs) (laughs) because um, they it's just it's just a little too messy for them, you know, because we're blended. We've got Jeff had three kids. I have two. We're just messy. Um, you know, we've become real and normal. Yeah. (laughs) And a lot of, a lot, a lot of congregations don't want to admit is we look like about 55 to 60% of their congregation. Yes, exactly. And, and we've lived some life and we've had some experiences that we can relate on a totally different setting, um, and a different level than anybody else can. Um, but you're an asset to a church. Well, but it's almost as if even though neither of us were the offenders in our previous marriages, we were the scarlet letter because we chose not to endure and stay with them. And so we too, we have the scarlet letter. And um, we've seen time and again that people who are the offenders are much more likely to be welcomed back into a fellowship of believers as long as they stay married to the person. Mm. So a church is much more likely to accept an offender, as in someone who has had an affair on their spouse or more than one, than they are to accept someone who chose to protect their family and walk away from a very detrimental situation. Wow. And so it's been interesting. So <laughs> does that go back to what you said earlier about who the church chooses to extend grace to and does not extend grace to? Yeah. Wow. And I think that goes back to the responsibility. If we truly believe that each of us as individuals is part of the body of Christ, then we do have a responsibility to speak up for those things. Like if we are listening and are like, well, I don't think that. Okay. Well, if you have an opportunity that you can speak into who is a leader, does their marital status or past influence their ability to lead and guide and offer God's grace and mercy to others, or does it limit it? Do we use our voice to advocate for really healthy leaders? We're so busy looking at sort of this laundry list of things that we that the church thinks are important that we're not really looking at everything. And I think now in the last few years, we've seen a lot of leaders fall and we're seeing that the repercussions of not talking about things or in Rachel's case, like being so hung up on these issues that we have decided are determining factors about whether someone can be in leadership. It's like, we're kind of getting, we're kind of missing it because we're just not looking at the right things. Rachel, was there, was there a safe space for you to go and talk to someone in the church about what you were experiencing in your first marriage? Um, that's a really good question. No. Mm. Um, I was, I was terrified, Mm. um, to let anyone know what was really going on. Um, afraid of, of exposure, afraid of how people would view me. Cause obviously it was my fault. 
Um, and I, I was extremely afraid of losing any sort of respect that I did have. Um, I thought that if I was honest about what was happening in my home, that people would view me differently. Wow. And so I protected it. And, and in truth, I covered it mm-hmm. until I couldn't cover it anymore. Um, I told my counselor one time, I was like, I got to the point that I had pushed so many things under the rug. Like I had a rug at the time in my living room. I was like that I was climbing Mount Everest to get from room to room. Wow. Like that's what it felt like emotionally. Yeah. Was that I had just pushed so many things aside that I just, it was insurmountable. Um, And I think that we have a tendency to do that um, because shame says there's something wrong, right, with me. Um, And so I think the shame that, the fear of shame even. Yeah. Is, is, can be debilitating. Um, And, and I'll be honest, I'm a shameless plug again. Listen, if there's anybody who is like, your, your husband has a pornography addiction or has been unfaithful to you once, 10, 12, 50 times, like you need to find somebody. Like you need to find somebody to tell because it's not normal. Right. Not normal. Right. And it's, it's not, not your not fault. Okay. It's, and it's right. not your fault. You talk about that because it's not your fault and because that's a lot for one person to carry. And I think about, you know, if you felt that way and, and in your case, you were extremely innocent in all of that. I mean, that happened to you. It wasn't something you sought out. Um, and to be honest, even if, even in a situation where someone has made a mis- made a bad choice or made a mistake, they also should find a safe place yeah. within the walls of the church, within the community, the Christian community. And I think that has a, has contributed a lot to some of the issues that we're seeing all the time where where people have led these closeted lives for for a lot of different reasons or they have all these secrets that they've been like you said sweeping under the rug you know that's that's on the church that's on us that's mm-hmm. on us that we have not made it a safe place to be messy because we all are and i think that's something that I didn't learn young enough. Me I didn't either. learn it young enough. Yeah. And I, and that, yeah, I, I think if anyone walks away with anything today, it should be that you're allowed to be messy. Everybody is if messy. You know, yeah. You, you can't help it. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. you can't help I think it. you are going to be. And I think, I think like, what you, you said is of that. And like, it's going to get worse. Things will get worse if they're kept in the dark. Yes. And I heard a sermon one time about bringing things into the light, and I, I wish I could give credit to whoever that was. That, but it was like one of the best sermons I ever heard about. I think it was my pastor, Pastor Bill Furios in Chicago. He talked about like things fester in the dark, you know, like. But if it's brought to the light, that's where that's where you know there can't be darkness anymore. Once there's light, the dark goes away. So I think if you're keeping something like that down, it's only going to get worse. It's only going to make everything, you know, it makes it makes you feel worse. It makes the situation worse. Bring it into the light and the church should be a safe place to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we were, when we were talking about the purity culture, I think that is what the purity culture drove is the hiding. Like yes. if you do mess up, you've got to hide it. Nobody can know. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's the, that's where we've really, really gone wrong. Yeah. 
I think yeah, that's so they, true. Once somebody brings it to the light, they're risking judgment. So then you have, instead of it being a safe place, you have this judgment on people like, okay, well, here's now what you can and can't do because of this thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's what we think of you now. Yeah. You know, it's interesting just listening to, to both of you. And I think it informs how we um, go about our daily lives as leaders, as, you know, just, or as people, just as people, um, Lane and I lived in Texas for for 13 years, and so much of our story happened there. Um, My long illness, our infertility, our adoption story, um, our education in um, our master's degrees, so many things happened there that when we moved and, and everybody around us who was close to us saw our mess, because honestly, we were too tired to hide it. Like, it's just, it is what it is. Like, yeah, Kelly's still in bed. It's been two years. It's okay. You know, we're, we're trying. Yes, thank you for your prayers. You know, uh, and so we could not hide that. But what's been interesting is when we moved to Louisville, and we've been here for three years now, is that people don't know our story. And I was speaking about a year ago, and I was giving some of my story to a group of women. And Again, it's just part of my story. So I, you know, it's in my head and I know I'm a mess, but this woman came up to me who I love and is a dear friend. And she said, um, a new friend, obviously. And she said, I never would have guessed because you always look like you have it together. And she meant it as a compliment. And I took it as I am doing something wrong. And so I, I intentionally try to find ways to show, like if I have a leadership meeting and they're like, how's everybody doing? I'm like, I've had the worst day ever. My kids are driving me nuts. Or I've just tried to be honest of if you, if I'm going to expect and hope that you will come to me and be honest and know that I'm a safe place, I need to share some of my crazy with you or share some of my imperfections and messiness and know, hey, if you need something, you, you've come to the right place. It's okay because I am not together for the love <laughs> at all. <laughs> so um, I think what you guys are saying in, in bringing things to light and making sure that the church is a place that people can come to and be vulnerable and be authentic with where they are at, I think it starts with us as individuals of creating that atmosphere around us. I feel like there is becoming a culture that's more honest and open that is happening. You know, I think of um, Beth Moore, Jen Hatmaker, I think, you know, like some, you know, Christine Kane, like much more willing to sort of just be real. And I think I, I don't know that I could have even found that when I was in my late teens, early twenties, even, you know, right. mid to late twenties. I don't think that started to be acceptable at least in, in my experience until the last few years. And it's been nice to see that happening. And I hope that it continues to happen. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed part one of my conversation with Katie and Rachel. Make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss part two next week where we discuss women in ministry and politics. Do you have a question or comment about today's episode? I'd love to hear from you. Email me at podcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next time.